Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. This episode is a live session from the Jaipur Lit Fest 2022, and it's called The Lover Boy of Bahawalpur. Rahul Pandita in conversation with Jyoti Malhotra. It's uh, wonderful to be here with you, Rahul, on this early morning on the 13th. You, you, obviously, you have a hardcore support base because, you know, for, on a Sunday early morning for people to come and listen to, uh, to you to talk about this book is, I think, is, uh, is, is just uh, not just interesting but encouraging that I think journalists like us perhaps hopefully have another future in writing books. But ladies and gentlemen, let me show you this book cover. Here it is, The Lover Boy of Bahawalpur. And um, I hope that after this session that all of you will go out and buy the book. And Rahul is, of course, here for, for book signings. But let me just very briefly give you a snapshot of what this book is about. So in India, the, uh, and, I'm, and I imagine at least elsewhere in the world as well, the term, the Pulwama attack, is now part of our recent history. And what happened was in Pulwama was that on the 14th of February 2019, so just uh, over three years ago, two young men, two young Kashmiri men, got into a, a Maruti car and rammed their Maruti car, which was full of explosives, into a CRPF convoy that was traveling um, to the Kashmir Valley. and. Subsequently, it, the investigations by the NIA, the uh, National Investigation Agency, took a, just a month, a few weeks, to crack the case. And the connection leads all the way into a city in Pakistan called Bahawalpur, which is the headquarters of the terrorist group, the Jaish e Mohammed. Now, what Rahul has done in this book is that he's painted not just the story of the Pulwama attack, the impact that this has on India, but he's connected the dots in a sense of why the, the attack takes place and the connection back to, uh, to uh, the jaish e Mohammed. So Rahul, welcome to this uh, session this morning. Thank you. And let's start by uh, my first question to you is, it's a very evocative title, The Lover Boy of Bahawalpur. So tell us a little bit, a bit about this. Who is this man? This man uh, is a young man who's very elusive. Um, he is trained in the best joint facilities of Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and Jash. Um, in Sangin camp in the Helmand province of Afghanistan. Um, and he is the nephew of the Jash's founder, uh, Masood Azhar. But, uh, his own immediate family also has uh, a past uh, with uh, security in uh, India. His father is one of the hijackers of the IC-814 uh, plane. And he goes to this camp in 2016. 
and comes out uh, after getting this enormous, exhaustive training um, uh, in explosives, um, in getting uh, people, in getting sympathizers. Um, he's also trained very well in communication. Uh, he's, he becomes a mesmerizing speaker. He can speak in fluent Urdu, uh, Dari, Pashto. And just like his uncle, when he speaks, that's his main job. Uh, but Masood Azhar was someone uh, who could not fight. Uh, in the uh, 90s, late 80s, 90s, when he goes to a training camp, uh, he fails even the basic uh, training which is given to, uh, you know, militant cadre in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, but this guy um, uh, has, does very well in his training also and is then sent uh, to Kashmir with a specific purpose. And the purpose is to wreak havoc and bring the current government on its knees. But there is a little miscalculation there because the Jash in their mind uh, think that after this suicide attack, um, there will be a lot of pressure and it will dent the credibility of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Um, but something else happens, and we can talk about it uh, later. So when he reaches uh, South Kashmir, Pulwama, they cross from the international border in Jammu um, through a militant sympathizer, through a Kashmiri militant sympathizer, and then he comes there. Now, why the lover boy? The lover boy is there because he's very charming. He befriends a lot of people, including women. Uh, they all think that he's in love with them. Uh, but he is not in love with them. He just uses them as cannon fodder uh, to get more access to OGWs or overground workers who then do his bidding, um, including uh, the suicide bomber, who then rams his blue Maruti eco car in a convoy of paramilitary forces, killing 40 of them. Okay, so two questions from that, Rahul. The first is that, as you say in the book, this is in the 30 years of insurgency in Kashmir, in the Kashmir Valley, this has been the worst attack yet, the Pulwama attack. Uh, in fact, even more than in, you know, some of us may remember in October 2001, just before the parliament attack in Delhi, which was in December 2001, at the, in, the, in front of the Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir Legislative Assembly, there was an attack. Now, the Pulwama attack is, it kills about 40, 46, 40, 40. 40 people, 40 people. This, that's, but in this attack, you have two young Kashmiris who, who have participated in this attack. And actually, what is interesting is that in the 30 years of insurgency, you have these Pakistani infiltrators who cross the LOC or the, the international border, but you don't have local Kashmiris who are undertaking this attack. So what happened this time that, that, this, uh, that this young Kashmiri man was the um, Adar, his Adil Ahmed Dar. What is it, why is it different this time? Now, this is a very interesting point, Jyoti, uh, because when Pulwama happens, it confuses the intelligence and security grid in Kashmir to the extent that they refuse to believe that this suicide bombing has been done by a young local Kashmiri boy. Uh, 
right after the case goes to national investigation agencies and the officer in charge of the case, Rakesh Balwal, who is a young SP of the NIA based in Jammu, he goes around, he speaks to senior officials. None of them is willing to believe that this is something which has been done by a young Kashmiri. Now, there's a, there's a history to it. The history is that uh, never before, except one single case, uh, was any Kashmiri f found uh, involved in a suicide attack. You know, there's this just one attack uh, in, in, in early 2000, uh, in April 2000, when a young MBBS student rams his uh, car in a very similar fashion outside the main military cantonment in Badami Bagh on the outskirts of Srinagar city uh, and kills, uh, uh, kills a sentry. Um, so when the attack happens, uh, there are CRPF personnel there who served in the Naxal infested areas. Uh, there's a huge uh, uh, crater which has been created because of the impact of the blast. And for hours and hours, for almost 24 hours, uh, they believe that this is a landmine blast. You know, this is a, this is a typical IED blast which is usually done by the Naxalites in central and eastern India. It is only later when uh, uh, the thumb of uh, Adil Dar uh, and the key of uh, that uh, ill-fated car is recovered from a muddy slush by Rakesh Balwal four days, uh, six days after the blast is when the thumb is sent for a DNA and analysis. Uh, and then uh, for sure we know that, you know, this has been done by Adil Dar. Um, so that uh, kind of makes the uh, security grid in Kashmir very worried uh, because they are used to the so-called Mehmani Mujahid or the foreign warriors, um, foreign militants who come uh, from outside. They are trained in the best facility. In their hearts, uh, the intelligence uh, and the security grid in Kashmir also believes in the fact um, that the Kashmiri boys do not have that kind of courage uh, to kill themselves. Now, this incident uh, leaves all their, uh, you know, their past theories behind uh, and brings a new element in the history of insurgency in Kashmir that even young Kashmiri boys are now willing to give up their lives for the cause of militant Islam. And you also say that this attack, uh, in a sense, strengthened or re-strengthened Prime Minister Modi and the government's determination or resolve to, um, to revoke Article 370. But we will talk about that a little later. Talk to us a little bit about this young man, Omar Farooq. I think he's 24 years old. You said his father was one of the hijackers of IC-814. And if any of you are old enough to remember, you remember that when these hijackers were finally let off after ransom money was paid and these three terrorists were released, Masood Azhar, that's the uncle of this young man, Omar Farooq. So it's, it's really like a family that, is, that has got its hands steeped in the, in, in the blood of innocent people. So what happens now with Masood Azhar, uh, Omar Farooq's father? So Take us to Bahawalpur, to the headquarters of the Jaish e Mohammed, and tell us what is it that who what is this terror group? The foundations of this terror group are somehow laid in the early 90s, when a lot of so-called uh, foreign uh, mujahids or mehmani mujahids, as they are called in Kashmir, have started coming to Kashmir Valley to fight. Uh, against the Indian security forces. 
uh, right after the demolition of Babri Masjid, a young, young pudgy man is sent um, along with another guy. They take separate routes. There's a guy called Sajjad Afghani who takes a flight from Dhaka uh, and reaches Delhi. And from Delhi, he goes to Kashmir. Uh, another young man, very fat, pudgy again, uh, he takes another route uh, as a businessman from Portugal and lands up in, uh, at the Delhi airport, the immigration officer asks him that he does not look like a Portuguese. So he says he's a businessman called Mohammed Isa, and he's of a Gujarati descent. And uh, he goes through. He stays at the Ashoka Hotel in Delhi, uh, then visits Lucknow. He visits uh, the site uh, of the demolition in, in Ayodhya and vows to fight the Indian security forces. But like I said earlier, he is someone who is a wonderful, great orator. He has the capability and power to sway thousands of minds. But he's not a trained fighter at all. He's very clumsy. So somehow, with the help of his uh, other militant commanders, he reaches South Kashmir, where he addresses a big group of uh, armed militants, and then Along with this man called Sajjad Afghani, they are on their way to other venue when their auto rickshaw in which they are traveling uh, kind of stops miraculously in the middle of this town in South Kashmir called Anantanag. And he becomes so nervous that there's BSF, border security force, that they, f they feel that there's something wrong with these guys, and these guys are arrested. At, during his arrest, the BSF or the intelligence agencies have absolutely no idea about the importance of this man, about who he is. And it's only after a couple of days then they realize that you know, they've got a big fish. And he's put in, in jail. In the June of 1990, they've put in a jail in uh, Jammu, on the outskirts of Jammu, in the jail called Kot Balwal Jail. In the June of 1999, Sajjad Afghani makes this huge attempt to escape, but he's killed. Now he lies buried in the Kot Balwal Jail. And Masood Azra is there. Till he is released in exchange of the uh, hostages of IC-814. He is exchanged uh, along with another very elusive man uh, called Omar uh, and a Kashmiri uh, militant called Mushtaq Zargar. And then they reach uh, Pakistan to this rousing welcome. A month later, Jashi Mohammed is formed. Uh, now, JASH really works as a JASH INC. It's a family-run enterprise. Um, uh, so Rauf Asghar, the operational head, the current operational head of JASH, uh, is again Masood Azhar's brother. They are 11 siblings. Uh, and all of them are involved uh, in, in this operation. And as you know, even the future generations, uh, just a few months before uh, Omar comes to Kashmir, his own brother, younger brother, is also sent to Kashmir with an M4 carbine. Uh, and that is for the first time when an M4, US-made M4 carbine uh, is found in Kashmir. And this sends the entire security establishment in Kashmir in a tizzy. But, but t t tell us the importance. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But this importance of this M4 carbine that you talk about, in the, why is it so important that, that the security grid is now so nervous about the fact that the, an M4 has been found? No, the Jash. Uh, is the most uh, ferocious 
terrorist organizations of all. Uh, the, the security forces in Kashmir have a lot of experience uh, in dealing with uh, other foreign militant organizations like Lashkar-e-Toyba. Uh, they are very well equipped to uh, deal with uh, local militant organizations like Hezbollah Mujahideen. If you follow the history and the pattern of militancy in Kashmir, a Kashmiri militant who is from Hezbollah Mujahideen lasts a few months, uh, now really a few weeks before he's trapped into some building uh, and the, you know, the encounter is over in a few uh, hours and it mostly usually uh, ends up in this young man losing his life. But that's not the case with Jazz. Uh, like uh, Omar Farooq, they are trained in the best of facilities. Uh, they have a lot of uh, uh, system uh, in place in Kashmir, uh, a system uh, which is taken care of by Masood Azhar. It is also uh, an infrastructure which is created by the first recruit uh, of jaish e uh, a man called Ghazi Baba, the mastermind of the parliament attack, uh, who was killed in a BSF operation uh, in Srinagar in August 2003. But before his death, for those three, four years, he creates a certain infrastructure um, in terms of hideouts, in terms of overground workers, in terms of what militants should really do in Kashmir. And you'll be surprised, Jyoti, that that infrastructure, that blueprint, is still used uh, by militant organizations, uh, primarily the Jash, in, in Kashmir even now. If you look at the pattern, you know, uh, sometimes you see news about some young man uh, suddenly approaching a Kashmiri police officer, uh, unarmed Kashmiri police officer, and killing him. That's a pattern, that's, uh, that's a blueprint which was created by Ghazi Baba in the late 1999 and 2000. This is something which has already happened in, in, in Kashmir in early 2000s. This is a big challenge uh, for, for, for the Indian security forces, uh, especially looking at the kind of damage uh, they were able to do in a place like Pulwama. But they, um, in Bahawalpur, so first of all, why is Bahawalpur so special? Second of all, these, the Jaisha Muhammad that has been set up, you say, just one month after the IC-814 hijacking, when the terrorists come out of the plane in Kandahar, and we see that, uh, well, we, at the time we didn't see any pictures, but we read about the fact that they got into a jeep and they drove off into Pakistan, which is right next door. Now, the, my question to you is that the Pakistani establishment, the deep state, whether it's the army or the ISI, they are recruiting young men uh, from, the, from Punjab, you know, from poor families in Punjab, setting up this organization called the Jaish-e Mohammed and infiltrating them into Jammu and Kashmir. But what happens, so make, can you for us sort of make this connection between the ISI and the Pakistan, the Pakistan deep state, Bahawalpur, and the Jaish-e Mohammed and these Kashmiri insurgents. So what is it? You know, earlier the question was that you said that very, very few Kashmiris themselves participate in suicide attacks. Why, why don't they do that? Why is it that this one was special? So like I said earlier, you know, the Jaish in Bahawalpur functions like a corporation. It's a, it's a family-run corporation with a, with a lot of uh, support. Uh, why Bahawalpur? Uh, because the main center is centered around this very famous mosque called the Benori Mosque. Um, it is uh, 
an ideological epicenter of all the jihadis in Pakistan. Uh, and that is where Masood Azhar is based. Um, in fact, uh, when Balakot uh, operation was planned uh, by uh, the Indian intelligence agencies, uh, that one uh, place was one of the probable targets which was discussed by Indian um, agencies, but it was ruled out at the last uh, uh, moment. Um, I'm not at liberty to say why, but uh, you know, these things happen. Now, you, you know, the, the support of the Pakistani government depending on international, international pressure, it comes and goes. There was a time during uh, General Parvez Musharraf's uh, time when there was a lot of crackdown on terrorist organizations, including the JASH. Um, but like you said, there is always going to be a deep state, uh, you know, the ISI-led deep state in Pakistan, which is going to function independently, almost independently of uh, who the in charge of Pakistan is. And they are going to do everything uh, in their power to make sure that this ecosystem lasts. And that is how JASH has flourished. So from 2000 till 2004, 2005, uh, the infrastructure, especially after the killing of Ghazi Baba in August of 2003, uh, after a lot of hard work, the JASH infrastructure is dismantled in 2004-2005. Uh, for those who follow Kashmir's history, um, you surely know that in the mid-2000s, Kashmir reached a point where most of us thought that things have become normal. That was the first time when Kashmiris were coming out. There was almost absolute normalcy um, before things became, uh, you, you know, before things went wrong again in 2008, 2009, 10, and so on and so forth, till the killing of the militant commander Burhan Wani in 2016. But it's also an interesting trajectory of these young boys and girls, in case of Insajan, their own trajectory, their own brush with Islamist terrorism. I think what has happened now is that now you are seeing a young generation of Kashmiris who are more radicalized uh, than their predecessors who started this insurgency in 89-90. Uh, they, you know, in 1989-90 when insurgency began, primarily by JKLF, it attracted a lot of vagrants and hoodlums uh, in small uh, areas in downtown Srinagar, and you know they had no ideological training, so to speak. I mean, they were they were very clear about the fact that you know um, uh, they have to kill Kashmiri pundits or they have to kill uh, paramilitary forces, etc. But their ideological training in militant Islam was very insufficient. That is not something which you can say about the new generation uh, of Adil Dars and Inshajans. Um, this is the time, uh, you know, this is what uh, uh, the security forces in Kashmir quip about sometimes. You know, when a young overground worker is sometimes arrested uh, in Kashmir and his smartphone is snatched, there are only two things on that smartphone. Um, one is porn, and one is uh, a lot of propaganda material like Dabik, you know, the ISIS, uh, ISIS magazine, that with digital copies, the PDF copies, uh, of which are readily available. Um, also what has happened is that militancy is at an all-time low, but the ground conditions under which something like this flourishes remains as strong uh, as ever. 
I was just going through uh, an uh, ISIS module, which was busted again by NIA, uh, lasted in July. And there's this young man who was uh, taking out um, uh, the digital copies of ISIS from a small house in South Kashmir, um, in, in, in Anantanag. Now, when he was interrogated, he told um, uh, the NIA that in his locality, there's a library where there are copies um, of uh, the speeches of this uh, uh, Palestinian theologist, Abdullah Azam, you know, he's, he's been a mentor of Osama bin Laden, etc., etc., are readily available. And he got radicalized because he has access to, you know, to, to that literature. And now these young boys, you know, who were born after 1990, they've seen a lot of violence. Sometimes as a, you know, I'm a Kashmirian, sometimes when I travel with these uh, stone pelters or chronic stone pelters or overground workers, sometimes they don't realize that even I am a Kashmiri. Uh, because, you know, I don't look like a Kashmiri. I've spent more time outside than in Kashmir. At least they can't make out. Their older generation can make out. And sometimes, you know, I just sit quietly and, and I hear them speaking to each other in Kashmiri. What really scares and frightens me, and this is a concern which many in the security establishment also share, is their comfort with the idea of death. Uh, that is uh, what led uh, to people, a young man like Adil Ahmadar, to ram his, his car. car. And there's no guarantee. Uh, it's almost certain uh, that in the near future, we'll see something like this again. Well, we, let's not talk about you know, these uh, sort of dire things right now. But Adil Ahmed Dar is the young man who uh, drives the car into the CRPF uh, convoy. But you mentioned a name just now, Insha Jan. Who is she? And what is her connection with Omar Farooq, who you call the lover boy of Bahawalpur, which gives its name to the book? You know, as a, as a, I call myself a student of counterinsurgency. I call, a I call myself a student of this country. And I'm a Kashmiri. So sometimes, you know, I'm really, um, you know, I really go, really want to go beyond my journalistic duty, you know, where you go for an assignment and your editor has asked you to get the color and a few quotes and you do, you know, you parachute yourself, you drop yourself uh, at Srinagar and you do that and you come back with a report, 2,000 word, 3,000 report. But as a student, you know, sometimes I'm really um, interested or fascinated about what prompts these young men and women to become what they do. So there are, you know, there are some interesting theories. In, in, in Sopur, in North Kashmir, um, there were two colleges, um, two colleges uh, next to each other. One was a women's college, one was a boys' college, you know, intermediate college, colleges. So the security forces realized something interesting. Both colleges shut at the same time. The women come out, the girls come out, the boys come out. And the boys, because they want to impress these girls, they immediately indulge in stone pelting against the security forces outside their college perimeter. So to avoid this, there was this wise young police officer there. What he did was he changed the timings of these colleges. And the stone pelting came to an immediate stop. Now that is, that is, that is one way of looking at it. You know, it's a simplistic way of looking at it. We must not forget, again, coming back to the extent of radicalization which has happened. Uh, in areas like Pulwama. In areas like Pulwama, after the death of militant commander Burhan Wani, were almost liberated zones. The police did not even go there to uh, 
uh, file FIRs. Everything was done over the phones in the months after the killing of uh, Burhanwani. Uh, there's a lot of support uh, for, 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 mili for militancy in these areas. Young Insha Jan is a mix of all of these factors. She's a young woman um, who's bored to death. Uh, like any other young man and woman anywhere else in the world, she's interested in films, she's interested in Bollywood, She's interested in uh, uh, singing, she's interested in ghazals, she's interested in love, she's interested in romance. But there's also a factor that her, her whole family is a terrorist sympathizers, their cousins, their father, you know, they all have had some kind of association with militancy. So when the young Omar Farooq, along with Adil Ahmadar, comes and takes shelter, she's immediately, because of also because of the mesmerizing personality of Umar Farooq, drawn to, uh, drawn to uh, uh, Umar Farooq. And she thinks in her heart that Umar Farooq is someone who only loves her. He makes her speak to um, his mother in Bahawalpur. He makes her speak to his wife uh, in Bahapur, Bahawalpur over WhatsApp video. And the wife tells, he, tells her that it's, his, it's her duty uh, to uh, make sure that he's comfortable. Comfortable, you know, means a lot of things. So, so she does that. She does, she does that duty. But it's only after uh, the case is cracked uh, and when the NIA officials confront her, does she realize that Omar Farooq had multiple uh, relationships with women, uh, including her own paternal uh, uncle's uh, daughter. Uh, then, you know, she's kind of broken and uh, she shares a lot of information with the officials of National Investigation Agency. So this young 21-year-old woman is, ha has a relationship with this Pakistani terrorist. And her, you know, tell me about the family. What does the family think about it? What does the community think about it? Because anywhere in the country, whether it's Kashmir or UP or anywhere in the south, for for a middle class family to ha for their daughter to have a relationship with i mean i know that insurgency these are these are special circumstances in kashmir but what does her family think what does her community think about this here's a very interesting fact about kashmir both intelligence agencies and militant groups sometimes try to recruit people from the same pool. Now you see a lot of contradictions in this. There's a guy called Ashik Ahmad Nengru, he's a truck driver, who between October 2000, September 2017 and October 2018 has made dozens of trips to the international border uh, in Jammu, in Samba, and has ferried 33 hardcore Pakistani jazz terrorists and brought them back uh, to Kashmir, including uh, Omar Farooq uh, and his four men uh, in the April of 2018. Uh, this Ashik Nengru is a former asset of one of the intelligence agencies. And now he has gone rogue and he started helping Jash. So you, you see this happening again and again. And in this component of intelligence and counterintelligence of, uh, you know, of recruiting agents uh, either way. 
women form an important important role uh, sometimes what happens is that and this has been happening from 90s onwards uh, really there are so many cases uh, where fathers or brothers have been disgusted about the fact that these mehmani mujahids come and then they seek shelter uh, and they you know they want to approach women in their house because women you know like any other uh, society is a matter of honor so they go to security forces give information about this about the presence of this uh, militant and then that militant is bumped off uh, so you know it's it's really a dichotomy but in some cases where the whole family is kind of involved uh, in militancy like in case of inchar jans um it is also in uh, very exceptional cases like in this case uh, considered a duty uh, to give some kind of uh, uh, comfort uh, and shelter uh, to young people like uh, umar farooq who have come uh, to fight the so called holy war against the indian security forces so all these components take place at the same time right now the balakot attack is beyond the scope of your book but tell us a little bit about you know the 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 attack the pulwama attack what does this do to the security uh, intelligence officials inside kashmir and to the government in delhi so this convoy which was targeted these convoys have started in kashmir after a gap of more than a week because snow has started falling uh, from the night of 5th feb onwards uh blocking the shrinagar jammu highway uh, which connects kashmir with the rest of india uh, so many uh, thousands of security forces from the army from the paramilitary forces are struck in transit camps in jammu these are basically people most of them uh, who had uh, left kashmir for a holiday they've gone back to their families and are now returning and because of the blockage of uh, uh, national highway they got stuck in these transit camps so there is unprecedented rush on the morning of 14 february when these convoys take place so the security of this particular stretch you know multiple agencies take care of it the road opening party of crpf is deployed there the military intel the local military intelligence unit of um, uh, in south kashmir is taking care of the overall security and some convoys in the morning just before these convoys are uh, passing uh belonging to the indian army they have passed they have passed safely and there's this young army officer from the military intelligence who now thinks that everything is is fine and he has had no time since early morning to even uh, have a meal uh, so there's a so there's a vehicle you know they have a vehicle in uh, in the operational area uh, uh, at a, a secret vehicle he goes there and he just opens a packet of lunch to eat when this blast happens at about 3:15 pm and he is the first his crack unit is the first to 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 reach there and i mean it's a gory sight it's a double road what they see is the bodies the mangled bodies of four crpf officers dangling on the communication towers about 100 meters from there you know there's a hillock on the right side there are a mobile towers there and these bodies are, uh, are dangling there now this immediately now the senior officers who rush to this place have many challenges number one challenge is to make sure that the rest of them go safely because sometimes militants are in hiding then they open fire 
then the tempers of the ordinary jawans run high and they want to go berserk they want to attack places like hajipura etc and the kashmiris have already fearing that they have locked themselves up in uh, houses the shops are shut because now they think they understand the gravity of this situation they they've seen uh, the bodies the pieces uh, lying around they know what is going to come to them but thanks to the wisdom of you know senior officers uh, that never happens but it creates a sort of nervousness among the security grid i spoke to some officials uh, and for days after uh, uh, after this incident when their vehicles would uh, travel through areas um, some of them said that they were very nervous about uh, uh, at the site of a of a of a civilian vehicle you know getting close to the, approaching their vehicle so that 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 nervousness uh, was obviously there the jash wanted this to be a slightly uh, less lesser incident in terms of casualties so even they don't know that 40 people have died uh, because in their theory and you know there's a chat which which these people shared which i got access to um, at one point in time rauf asgar uh, tells umar farooq that dushman ko utna hi nuksan pahunchana chahiye jitni uski uthane ki taakat ho now when when they realize that 40 people have died it also creates a sort of nervousness among them and that nervousness uh, you know uh, uh, also then uh, they don't know then but on the same evening the decision to revoke article 370 is taken by the ccs uh, and the security and uh, and the cabinet committee on security in delhi which is called the short form of the ccs that is that includes the prime minister the home minister the finance minister and the defense minister and the external affairs minister so four ministers and the prime minister and then then balakot is uh, you, you know they, they 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 want to do something they are not absolutely not sure about what to do uh, there are various theories some people suggest that they should do another surgical strike that you know the kind of strike they did but ultimately because of historical reasons which are which are there in the book um there's a raw asset which tells them the importance of the historical relevance of balakot and that kind of uh, i mean you can read more about it in the book that kind of seals the deal uh, for these people and then balakot is attacked there thank you for listening to this episode of jepper bites i'm your host lakshdatta This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.